Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I am so excited for this episode today because we have on the most amazing guest. We have on Dr. Loretta Bruning, and she has five books that I am binge reading right now. We've got Habits of a Happy Brain, The Science of Positivity, and Taming Your Anxiety. It is just phenomenal work, and I'm so excited for you to get to understand her work because it relates to every moment of your every day. What causes you to act every moment of every day? What causes you to react are the chemicals within your body. And this has become so apparent to me after working with over a thousand people, just how much we are driven in everything by these chemicals. Dr. Bruning, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And I should mention too, you have your own podcast as well. Yes. It's called um, Happy Bra- The Happy Brain and it's at happybrainpodcast.com. But um, everything is at my website, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. Awesome. Okay. So talk to me about this because as I'm working with my sessions, you know, and I work with spirit and I work with the angels and one day everything just lined up uh, with synchronicity and I just saw it all so crystal clear that as we go through our day, we eat, we sleep, we want to eat chocolate, we want to shop, whatever it is that we, we have these urges to do, it's all based on the chemicals within our brain. So animals have a very small brain, and yet they're constantly making decisions throughout their day. Should I walk toward that food, or is it dangerous to walk toward that food because of a predator? Should I walk back? We've inherited this decision mechanism, which is a happy chemical is released when you see something that's good for you, and that motivates you to go toward it. An unhappy chemical is released when you see something bad for you, and then you pull back. And that brain is common to all mammals. And then on top of that, we have a uniquely human brain, which is not in charge, (laughs) despite the way we might think, but is really enabling us to process more information in reaching the decision of whether something is good for you or whether something is bad for you. But all this processing funnels down to your mammal brain, which then releases a chemical that makes you feel good about something or bad about something. But what it all boils down to is how do you process this information? How do you make the decision? It's based on neural pathways built from your past experience. So that's a short introduction. Okay. And I can see this in my own life, right? Because people like different things. And when I work with my clients, I'm bringing out the most joy within them. Everybody has things that they go to that just light them up inside. And so for me, I remember being a kid and getting to go to the movie theaters was like the most overjoyous experience. The smell of the peanut butter, getting to sit in the chairs and this huge screen. And I felt freedom. And that's I so felt- funny. Um, I should add one thing. Um, the smell is our most primitive sense. So mm-hmm. that triggers memory more than anything. 
But what's fascinating is most people would say the smell of the popcorn, but yeah. you said the smell of the peanut butter. Oh, and did I say that? that oh, <laughs> I, I was wondering. Well, maybe okay. you can help me with this. I've noticed, I've noticed, and I, I didn't even know that I'd do this until I started hosting the podcast. I cross words. I was thinking popcorn, but I said peanut butter. And yeah, sometimes yeah. I do that with numbers. Like I cross numbers and I don't know if it's dyslexia or what it is, but it, it happens and I feel terrible, but it, it does happen and it just comes out. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I have that with, um, when I mean to say April, I say August. And when I mean to say August, I say so, yeah, so our, <laughs> our wiring is created from early experience. And we rely on the wiring we build in youth because that wiring develops super strong pathways because of the chemistry of neuroplasticity in youth and because of repetition. So um, the simple example I always use is when you speak your native language, you're relying on neural pathways that you built when you were young and repeated and built them strong. But when you try to learn a foreign language, then you're having to build new pathways and they're sort of rickety. And so we all have some strong pathways and some rickety pathways. And we don't want to be prisoners of whatever we randomly learned when we were young. So for example, going to the movies makes you feel good because that was like a big treat that you got when you were young. But we all want to widen ourselves to be excited about more different treats rather than just repeat the same old thing. But I wanted to ask you, because some, some things I noticed that made me happy, did the movies make your parents happy and you were learning from their happiness or was it used as a reward or was it escape? What it was, was definitely a an escape. And yeah, I think my parents loved movies as well. Okay. Well, anyway, I'll let you ask the questions, but I have just... Oh, yeah. No, so, so we have these things from when we're younger, and we have these neural pathways in our mind, and they're just so ingrained in us, right? So how do you learn to widen your scope when the chemistry wants to take you to that reward to keep going to see the movie? Good, good. So... um in my books, I explain the, what stimulates the four happy chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. And when you understand what stimulates them, then you sort of understand the impulse and you can think of new ways to stimulate it because you know what your inner mammal is really looking for. So you could think of new and perhaps healthier, safer ways to stimulate them or just more diverse. And it's not easy because the pathways built when you were young, like I said, were built so big and strong. So what it takes is repetition to build up a new pathway. So how can I think of a new pathway, a new way to stimulate it and repeat it? Okay. And I think I read this in one of your books. Did you say it takes over 45 days just to solidify that pathway? Not to make it easy, but... It, it makes um, 45 days of repetition will build a connection enough that your electricity flows in a new direction. Okay. But at the beginning, the electricity doesn't flow. And when that happens it makes us feel like you're doing the wrong thing, even though consciously you're doing the right. And a simple example would be uh, just let's use the movie example. So you've had a hard week at work and well, it's hard to use the movie example because going to the movies is not harmful. Let's say a person who 
needs to prepare for an exam or a work project. Okay. Instead of doing that, they go to the movies. So in that moment, when you're making the decision, I should go to my computer and work, but instead I'm going to the movies and you are expecting a reward when you go to the movies. And if you don't go to the movies, you're expecting a threat because in our past, we all feel threatened when we're children because children don't know how to meet their own needs. So they're totally dependent and Children can't control their environment, so they feel this lack of control. What does an animal do when they feel threatened? They try to run away from the threat. So going to the movies was an effective way of running away from the threat. So if you have a difficult work project or study project coming up, and you're like, I want to run away from that difficult feeling, and if I don't run away from it, I feel like the predator is getting closer and closer and it's going to kill me. So I have to expand that moment when I'm having that feeling so that I could admit to myself that the reason I want to go to the movies is not because it's a special movie. You know, we can all make excuses for ourselves very well, but to say, I am having fear about doing this project. And then how can I build a new pathway to tell myself, if I spend five minutes doing my work, and then I'm going to reward myself with five minutes of TV, and then I'm going to spend 10 minutes working and reward myself with a cookie, and then I'm going to spend a half hour working and then go to the movies. <laughs> now that's really, that's really small. That's just 45 minutes of work. So if, you know, if a person's really struggling, they may start small. And you're not going to live on cookies all the time. So this is just when you're having a really difficult time blazing a new trail in your mind and facing your fears and taking a step in a new direction, that the first step is to recognize it and then to know that you have the power to build a new pathway, but it's going to feel bad at first. So you can take small steps and give yourself rewards. And then if you do that for 45 days, then you'll start thinking, oh, I have some work to do. I'm going to work for two hours and then go to the movies. And then you'll get your work done and you'll feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So when it comes to anything that we do, you know, you see all of these people on social media who are doing great work trying to reach out to others and help them with their fitness and their health routines. And you've got so many life coaches and different people trying to really help folks get their lives in order. And when my clients come to me, there's a lot of frustration a lot of times because they've tried all of these different programs and they haven't had the success that they want to have. And what Spirit's really been bringing through to me is that this is really the missing element here, is a lot of times we have to understand the why before we can come to terms with how to make those true changes in our lives. And to me, it seems the why is really getting into your books and understanding these chemicals understanding what each one of the chemicals does, what it controls. I'm just wondering, in each instance, is it really going back to the root of fear of why we're not doing what we need to do? 
So the brain works on expectations. So either expectation of threat or expectation of reward. It prioritizes fear. It prioritizes threat because in the state of nature, a threat can kill you faster than a lost reward. But in the long run, you have to get rewards like in, a, in the state of nature, you have to find food all the time or you starve to death. So animals are always looking for food and our primitive ancestors were always looking for food. And they would take time out to run away from predators and they'd go back to looking for food. So in our daily lives, in addition to running away from threats, we're looking for rewards. What happens is the world is not predictable. So you're looking for rewards and you don't always get the reward you expect. So it'd be sort of like a monkey climbing high in a tree to get a piece of fruit. And then when it gets to the top of the tree, either the fruit is rotten or a bigger monkey climbs up and takes it, something like, or, you know, it's only one little dried out piece of fruit. So in our lives, we're always making predictions about how to get rewards. And you're thinking, I'll be really happy once I get to X. And then when you get to X, you're not happy. And you think it's because of today, the mindset is it's the world's fault. The world is bad. And if you understand how your brain works, you understand this. Our brain is always habituating to the rewards it already has. So if you get a reward every day, like let's say you wake up first thing in the morning, you have a cup of coffee. It's not like a big deal. But like if you were on a desert island and didn't have coffee for a month and then came back, you'd be like, oh my God, coffee or whatever it is you missed. And so when we have something, we take it for granted. It doesn't excite us. And that's how the brain works because that's how it gets us to focus on the unmet need. So your brain is always focusing on the unmet need and um, taking for granted what it has. So to put this in context, you said you had clients who wanted something and they weren't getting it. It's not just fear, but it's that I don't want to be disappointed. I want to predict what will work. But in fact, we can't predict what will work. So we have to take steps. Maybe they'll fail. Then take another step. Maybe that will fail. And if you think of your ancestors, they looked for food here, and maybe they didn't find food. So they looked somewhere else. And sometimes they didn't eat for a day or two because they couldn't perfectly predict how to find food. And that's a survival threat thing in the brain. So if we really want to make changes in our lives, do we need to find different rewards for ourselves that aren't our typical type of way that we reward ourselves? You've raised so many different issues in one question. So um, let me take them one at a time. So if you want to make changes, yes, that sounds like a great idea. But I'm not always starting from the idea that you should change yourself because I think self-acceptance is a better first step. Because, oh, I love that. <laughs> thank you. Because when you start with this, I got to change, I got to change. You know, I said you have two brains and it's like your human cortex, which is the verbal part of you, is telling your inner mammal, you're wrong, you're bad, you're stupid. I, I want to kill you because that's how it sounds when you're saying you shouldn't want chocolate. You shouldn't want anything for yourself. You should only want things for others. You shouldn't have fun. You know, so your inner mammal feels like 
geez, I'm going to die. And that's how you're creating your own anxiety. So if you start with self-acceptance, then you could say, I understand why my inner mammal wants X, Y, and Z, but my human brain sees that in the long run, it's going to be bad for me because that's the job the human brain evolved to do is to anticipate long-run consequences. So how can my two brains get along and how can I find something that makes my inner mammal feel good and also my human brain feel good? That's perfect. And I love that because I preach that all the time. Just love yourself, love yourself. But you talked about the two different brains. And I talk about this too as the two different voices we kind of have within ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have the limbic system. And would you say the limbic system is what other people refer to as the intuition? Oh, I see. Um, oh, and some people refer to it as the reptile brain. Um, no. Um, either one, I don't totally agree with, which is why I started the inner mammal Institute, because I don't totally agree with a lot of what is said. So the human brain is right sometimes and wrong. Sometimes the limbic system is right sometimes and wrong sometimes. So that's why I, what does the human brain do? Oh yeah. Oh no, no, no. Sorry. What is the human? Let's break it down even further for people. What is the human brain and what is the limbic? Yeah. So, and I'll explain that. And I want to explain why you don't have to think one of them is the good guy and one of them is the bad guy. Because a lot of times when these are dividing things like this is your true self and this is your false self, or this is your, you know, animal urges and you should, you know, like ignore one. And like, no, no, no. They both have different kind of wisdom and you can't always predict which one is right in this moment. Yes. And even in the long run, you can't. So you have to say, here are two sources of information and I have to listen to both and then make a reasoned judgment. So that may or may not be right, but I get to always change my mind in the future. So what, what is the difference? So um, the limbic system is, people have heard these words, the amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus, pituitary. It's a bunch of small structures that we've inherited from earlier mammals. They, they all have the same ones and Animals can make complex decisions with these structures and without a giant cortex. Some have almost no cortex at all. So that's sort of a proof that decision-making is done. Decision-making happens with the mammal brain, which either decides to release a happy chemical or an unhappy chemical. So what is the human brain able to do? You could think of it like a big, like a hard drive and a RAM and It's taking information from the world around you and it's filtering it and saying, what's really important? And how do you know what's really important? A lot of it is past experience with that same slice of information whenever you are in that particular setting. And part of it is whatever your inner mammal is doing at that moment. Is it giving you hungry chemicals or happy chemicals or unhappy chemicals? And then part of it is the little bit of intelligence you have, which is called the prefrontal cortex, which is, you could say, um, and it's your verbal brain that says, ignore all that other stuff. And for the moment, focus on X because X is more important. So that's when you make that decision that says, I've decided that X is important and I'm not going to get distracted by Y. 
And that's nice, but that's just part of your brain. And then we have all that competition. Um, (laughs) Okay, so let me break it down and see if I understand. The part of us, there's part of us that talks with language and that there's part of us that does not. And the part of us that talks with language, that's the mammal brain. No, you didn't. It's the I don't other. think you meant to say okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, yeah, the part that talks with language is the human cortex because okay. only humans speak. And um, I know animal people like to say blah, 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 blah. But um, only humans speak. And when you're talking to yourself, it's all in your cortex. And your mammal brain doesn't understand the words. And your human brain doesn't understand why your mammal brain is releasing the chemicals. So some, Stephen Pinker had this interesting thing. He calls it the Swiss Army knife view of the brain. So if you've seen the Swiss Army knife, it has all these different tools And they're all separate tools. They're not like one thing. So it's like I have separate tools in my brain. Speech is one of them. But when I talk to myself, you know, I could say, you could say a lot of it's bull. (laughs) You know, (laughs) a lot of it is coming up with excuses to do what you really want to do. Right with sophisticated reasons to do it, but it's not really good for you in the long run. So even your human cortex has different parts, the part that thinks for the long run and the part that puts stuff in words. Got it. So because in, in spirituality, a lot of people term this between ego and intuition, right? So the ego is the, the cortex that is talking to you. Um, I don't, well, I don't, like I said, I don't agree with the language in other groups. So when they use ego, they are using it in a negative way that you should just ignore your ego and just go by your intuition or whatever. Anyone who tells you to ignore your ego, again, that's like telling your inner mammal, I want to kill you (laughs) because (laughs) your inner mammal, it's telling your inner mammal, I don't care about my own needs because your inner mammal is telling you these are your needs and you're saying, I don't care about my own needs. I don't care if you die. And your inner mammal is saying, whoa, this is an emergency. My needs are not being recognized. Okay. I see. But having said that, you know, often your ego is wrong. I agree with that. So that's why you have to make these hard calls. Right. Yeah. No. And I totally agree with that, that the ego is not a bad thing. I've always said you just can't let it direct your entire life. You can't let it push you around. Exactly. And um, and so it's so brilliant because I want people to know the way that you line it out in the book, I really, I guess it just really helps you to understand the biology behind the spiritual lessons that the spiritual community has been talking about for so long and put it into a term where you can really grasp it and see, oh, I get it now. Yeah. This so is what's been going on. <laughs> so the whole core of this is how does ego work in animals? So that's the important thing. And I'm going to explain this in detail, but first by way of introduction, I should say that all the evolutionary psychology textbooks in the past made this clear and evolutionary biology and all of the millennia that humans have lived alongside animals and understood that animals were very competitive And biology taught us that animals are very competitive over reproduction and food. 
But the current, now they've thrown out all those old textbooks and they're feeding us the idea that animals are all peace and love and altruism and cooperation. And it's so not true. So animals are very competitive and we've inherited a competitive brain. And so we have to manage it. And here's the thing. And when you manage it, the mammal brain puts things in very simple terms, which is I'm either in the one-up position or the one-down position. Mm -hmm. So the, the monkey brain compares itself to the monkey next to it. And if it sees that the monkey next to it is stronger, it says, I'm not going to reach for that banana because if I do, the stronger monkey will bite me. So it releases cortisol, the stress chemical, and it withholds itself and doesn't assert itself to meet its needs. And if you do that all the time, you starve to death. So if you say, I'm going to withhold myself all the time and always put myself last and always put myself below others, your inner mammal says, whoa, I'm going to die. And that's the feeling people are creating in themselves. Then they get mad at the person who reaches for the banana because they think, oh, you have no right to reach for that banana because I've withheld myself, you should withhold yourself. That is so wrong. So the way it works in the animal world is um, it, the stronger mammal reaches for the banana when it sees that it's in the position of strength and that serotonin is released when a mammal sees I'm stronger than you and serotonin relaxes him and says, I'm going to go for it because I'm strong enough. I'm, I have confidence in my own strength. Now, in the human world, we have learned to moderate and control this basically from preschool and daycare when you want to reach for that toy and they teach you, no, you have to restrain that urge to reach for whatever you want. That doesn't mean you never get a toy in your whole life. It means you learn to make careful decisions about when you just reach. And the way you make those decisions is you compare yourself to others and you judge the social situation. But what makes this all so painful, if I may go on, yeah, um, yeah. is that in adolescence, in adolescence, we have a new spurt of neuroplasticity. So whatever happened to you in adolescence, that's the GPS in your brain. That's the set of neural pathways that's guiding your happiness and your unhappiness. And we all have unhappiness in adolescence because the mammal brain evolved to tell you that you must get that mating opportunity or your genes will be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, nobody thinks that in words and animals don't think that in words either, but animals put all their energy into getting that mating opportunity without getting bitten and clawed and killed. So they have difficult decisions. I wanna go for it to get the mating opportunity, but I don't wanna get killed and if you make good decisions, then your genes survive. And our genes are inherited from individuals who make good decisions. So we have this life and death sense of urgency about how can I be the one in my high school who's got it going on <laughs> so, that I can, so that I can get the reproductive opportunity. And that triggers your serotonin. 
and you think you should have that good feeling all the time. And then they give you this idea that if you don't have that good feeling all the time, that the doctor could give it to you, that you have anxiety disorder, depression, and you think other people feel like they got it going on every minute of every day, and somehow something's wrong with you, and a pill can fix it. But the reality is that serotonin did not evolve for us to have that feeling every minute, but it's natural and healthy to want that feeling. And as we mature, we learn to give it to ourselves by saying to ourselves, I can relax because I have enough bananas. I have enough mating opportunity and I can get more when I need them because I have confidence in my own skills. Interesting. So you said that the, the teenage years, your high school experience creates this GPS, right? What if you were like me and you hid out in the journalism room and you tried to avoid all people and you had the worst high school experience? What, what do you do then? That's so yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so funny. You know, I had a similar discussion with another podcaster yesterday. So I, I, you know, on some level, you could say that people I interact with like books And so we got rewards from books when we were young and our GPS is focused on. So the first thing I would say is that you obviously did not have a bad high school experience because you built healthy skills that are useful to you now. And the same for me. So the cliche that the person who had a good high school experience was like always quote unquote popular. This is an animal urge to be popular because the quote unquote popular animal gets all the mating opportunity. So this is, nobody lives up to that, but the movies creates this idea. And this is why if you start asking people, almost 100% of people will say they had a bad time in high school because nobody lives up to this movie image of high school popularity. And we all feel bad about not having it because the animal brain seeks popularity. And I read this study, it's so funny, what causes popularity in high school is the same thing that causes it in the animal world, which is three things, uh, a healthy appearance, a bunch of social allies, and a willingness to take risks. Hmm. So whether it's monkeys or teenagers, that's what gets you a lot of um, mating opportunity. (laughs) That's so fascinating. You know, and I read in your books too, because it doesn't just stop when we have the children. Um, You said, you know, our primary uh, function is like our mammal selves is to reproduce. And then once we reproduce, it's keeping those babies alive And not only that, but seeing them, like, uh, what did you say in one of your books? That when you have greater social connections, those babies are able to thrive so much more. And so that's why we seek that status, that popularity, even as adults, right? Exactly. Yes. And I have to clarify before we both get hate mail, um, hate mail, when you said about that our brain is something about we're meant to reproduce. So I'm not telling you that you should reproduce or that you need to reproduce to be happy. I'm saying the nonverbal part of your brain rewards you with happy chemicals when you do things that would promote reproduction in the state of nature. So if you try to, um, 
improve your waistline, that would get you more reproductive opportunity in the state of nature. So you get happy chemicals when you improve your waistline. And if you your waistline looks bad, you get unhappy chemicals because your mammal brain is thinking, oh no, now I'm not going to get mating opportunity. My genes are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. So nobody's consciously thinking that. And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't have children and they should or shouldn't make you happy. 100%. But once you have children, then you get just as wacky about the survival of your children because in the animal world, a huge percentage of children don't survive to the age where they reproduce yourself. And to know why this is important, think about it this way. In a state of nature, a lot of people died young, never reproduced, but your ancestors did. So my grandparents, great-grandparents, going back a hundred generations, a thousand generations, a million generations, every one of my ancestors survived, despite the fact that most creatures don't survive. So this is a miracle when you think about it. So natural selection built a brain that obsesses over the survival of your genes even though you don't consciously think that. And the funny example I always use is about parents obsessing over their kids' test scores because that's the modern equivalent of what's going to make babies who survive to have babies who survive to have babies who survive to have babies. Interesting. <laughs> that is fascinating. So it makes me think a little bit about Facebook and just how people feel so depressed after going on Facebook and seeing this person's over here and this person's over here, and it all ties into this. Um, so on the one hand, um, the natural mammalian impulse for social comparison is very much tied into this, um, is, is tied into social media, but it existed forever. So every technology has fed into our a mammalian urge for social comparison. So before there were bikinis, people went to the ocean with head to the toe covering and they competed on that, you know? Got it. <laughs> so the whole idea that social media is the problem, I'm totally against that. I think that's mostly being perpetuated by people who are losing their audience to social media. Having said that each of us is responsible for our own brain. So if you are letting social media make you miserable, it's your responsibility to stop that. And I'll give you a great example. Everybody says, oh, you know, you need to get out and talk to people in person. So I have this friend that I meet in person. I really like, we really understand each other, but like we understand each other more than most people. But the minute I see her, my eyes go to her waist. She has a small waist and I have a very thick waist. And when she sees me, her eyes go right to my hair because she has thinning hair and I have very thick hair. So she is focused on her weakness and how I am one-upping her in her area of weakness. And I'm focused on my weakness and how she is one-upping me in my area of weakness. So because we're friends, we just don't go there. We just drop that and go on to the things we have in common. So that's sort of the bargain we humans have with each other is our mammal brain 
immediately goes and makes that social comparison. But then we have the power to say, okay, I'm not going to feed that thought loop. I'm going to focus on what we have in common. But the tragedy is, how do we bond? Most people bond by focusing on a common enemy. So whoever you're with, the way you stop competing with them is by joining with them to fight against someone else, whether the someone else is someone you both know in person or an entity of whatever form. And you can notice every minute of every day how people are bonding around whoever is the common enemy of that group. And that's exactly what mammals do. Do I explain in my book, uh, I Mammal, about how animals bond against their common enemy. So... That is so fascinating. That is so fascinating. And I laughed there for a second because I just see how true it is <laughs> in the day-to-day. Let's talk about some real-life examples. I'm wondering, you know, going back to the person who is trying to narrow their waistline and they've been working at it, working at it, and they're focusing on loving themselves, but they're not seeing the results that they want to get. What are the three to five things that you would tell them to do to really see the changes that they want to see? I really grew up in a very foodie environment, so I really understand the mindset of obsessing over food. So if I'm sitting at my computer and I have to do, like we all know like you have that task that it went wrong last time and you think, oh, if I do that, it's going to go wrong and I, it should take five minutes, but it's going to take an hour and I'm going to get all frustrated. What can I eat, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. How can I have, I'm going to have a snack. <laughs> yeah. so, so the first step is to notice that thought process and to say, I'm going to spend, and you, everyone can adjust this to themselves, but what I say to myself, I'm going to spend 10 minutes on that horrible task that I hate. And I look at the clock, and usually once I get, and, and then after 10 minutes, uh, if I still, still can't do it, then I'll have a snack, a healthy snack. So I start doing the, the, the task, and after 10 minutes, I'm into it. So I'm not even thinking about the food anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so we can, if we already have the habit of rewarding ourselves with food, we have to admit it and we have to find ways to manage it. Tell you my other really good trick that I do. Oh, please do. So, um, so I'm a tea addict. I make myself, just, just one example, I make myself something sweet to eat with the tea, but it's something sweet that's like mostly fiber and only a tiny bit of sugar. And I have a small bit with a cup of tea and I have like a little bite and tea and a little bite and tea. I have it together. And I have this thing like when my teacup is empty, I stop eating. It's a big, big teacup. <laughs> when the teacup is empty, I stop eating and I don't have another. And so I limit myself to four cups of tea a day. So I have all these tricks. I'm wondering about consciousness. And I know what I think consciousness is, but what what is consciousness to you? You have these two different brains. They're both driving you in different ways. What is consciousness? The way I look at it is my senses are always taking in information from the world around me. My eyes, ears, nose, what else? <laughs> Hands. Um, one more, right? <laughs> so your senses are always taking in more information than you can possibly process. So you have to filter your information. 
every brain is designed to filter information. So when I filter information, I'm telling my brain what I'm looking for. Now, what your brain is designed for is in the state of nature, you are looking for where's food and where's mating opportunity and where's a predator. So today, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for where's my boss? What do my clients want? What do my teacher want? What do my spouse want? How can I please others to strengthen my social bonds? So we're doing that with all our eyes and ears and nose. And, you know, they were designed to filter information for a different purpose. But we do it the same way, which is we filter the information with neural pathways built from past experience. So when I let in information and just let it flow into my childhood circuits, that's so effortless. And that triggers those circuits. And that tells me what is going on around me. And I feel like that is the truth. I don't realize that's that's something I constructed with my own circuits and my own cortex, which has like six different layers of filtering. So I don't realize that I constructed that. And, you know, one layer of filtering is my childhood circuits. And one layer of filtering is the last person I talked to because that activated those circuits and an activated circuit makes electricity flow easily. So my personal superpower, my consciousness is the split second I have of telling my electricity, well, you don't have to go into that circuit. You could go into a different circuit. So that's the way I look at it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And it's those thoughts that we have when it comes to mindfulness. I heard somebody say something that was brilliant the other day. They said, um, mindfulness, you have to think about it as a house, because I teach mindfulness all the time. You have to think mindfulness as an empty house, and that a robber is coming in to an empty house. If the house was full of all of those thoughts that you had, the robber could come in and take those thoughts, taking out those different items from the house. But if the house is empty, the robber doesn't have anything to hold on to, right? So if you are able to get to a point where you see things from a different perspective and see that really you're being controlled in a different way by this chemical, or you're doing this because of your past childhood, or that this really doesn't matter as much as our brain is telling us it matters. We're able to empty our our brains in a way so that we're not holding on to all of this stuff that can tend to control us throughout our life? Um, well, I, I'm actually not a, a follower of this perspective, um, with all respect. And again, anyone, if it's working for you, fabulous. I'm not criticizing it. So uh, I guess the way I think about it is thinking is not the problem. It's negative thinking is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm in the shower and I focus on my excess poundage, If I'm writing emails and I focus on, I'm going to write this to this person and they're probably going to come back and argue with me. So whatever you're doing, you could create a positive expectation or negative expectation. Like in the shower, we can think about how lucky we are to have clean, hot running water and how good it feels. And writing the email, I could say, this person may love what I have to say. And if they don't, 
then I'll be interested in hearing what their argument is. So just finding the positive in whatever we do. So it's still thinking, but it's positive. Yes. No, I totally see what you're saying. So in your book, The Power of Positivity, because I haven't gotten to that one yet, is that a lot of what you dive into is, is when we have these negative thoughts, how you overcome those thoughts? Yes. And it's the idea of knowing that your negative thoughts are a pathway in your brain. It's a very well-developed pathway. So you go there effortlessly and you don't even realize that it's just going into a pathway. You think it's true. So the solution is always that positivity is a new pathway that you have to build. And when you build it at first, it's going to be very weak. So you have to build it up. And at first it's going to feel false. Like when you think that positive thought, like maybe this person will love what I have to say. And then your old, your old circuits are going to say, no, that's tr- not true. This person's going to hate what I have to say. So you have to say, okay, but I decided to blaze a positive pathway in my brain. So I'm, it's just what I say. Your brain is already actively looking for the negative. So you have to train it to actively look for the positive. And when you actively look for the positive, you're going to say to yourself, oh, but that's fake. That's biased. But you don't realize that your negativity is already fake and biased. So do you train your brain to look for the positive by asking it questions? The way I do it, and I don't do that. Um, you could if that works for you. And I don't focus on puppies and rainbows and whatever. <laughs> so um, I focus on giving my inner mammal what it wants. Because if you want happy chemicals, you have to get them from your inner mammal. So how can I give my inner mammal what it wants? It wants to be in the one-up position. It wants to have the safety of a herd. It wants to have another banana. But we all know that in real life, bad things will happen if you constantly shove bananas in your mouth. Bad things will happen if you constantly dominate others. So how can I give my inner mammal what it wants in a safe, healthy way? So I got to find small little teeny weeny ways to give my inner mammal what it wants. And And that's basically giving my inner mammal the idea that um, you will have what you want rather than telling my inner mammal, the world is so unfair and you'll (laughs) never have what you want. So you have to constantly fight the world. That's going to be- I totally get this. I totally get this. So instead of, don't hate me all, all of you out there, we have uh, this really cool thing in the backyard. We make like a fire pit, right? And we go sit out back there and we get these big things of Hershey chocolate, right? The big size candy bars so that we go out there, we eat the s'mores every night. And when Just I've been- once struck- more with a cup of tea. Right? Well, what I'm thinking is, you know, instead I've been binging on those Hershey chocolates and it comes from that negative mindset within your mind of, well, I'm just going to eat good today. I'm just going to eat good today, which is really telling your mind, I'm going to deprive myself. I'm going to deprive myself. So instead, if you had that thought, every day I'm going to have my four cups of tea with my healthy fiber treat, I'm getting four treats a day. You know, that's what your brain is hearing instead. That's it. It's I'm going to get four treats a day. Focus on the positive. I was looking because I have my chocolate here, but it's not here now. (laughs) So um, I I, actually, for me, it's fortunate. I love bitter chocolate. So um and like, I can only eat a tiny amount of bitter chocolate, but- Oh, um, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. But, I'm um, just kidding, yeah. <laughs> but then there are other things. I'll give you a great example. I used to cook a big pot of stew. And when I was cooking and tasting and then putting the stew into freezer containers, I would eat like three full dinners of just from tasting. Yeah. So I know that if I expose myself to stuff, I can't control it. So I have to create things to trick myself. Uh, I'm better now, but I mean in the past. So I really had to put the whole thing in the freezer. Like I say, bake a batch of cookies, put them all in the freezer except one, you know, one small one. And so you can always like, this is, uh, this is the chocolate I'm going to eat. Leave it out. Yeah. I'm going to eat and put the rest of the chocolate away, leave the chocolate out. And I'm going to have it after I accomplish my hardest task of the day. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have that feeling of launching into your hardest task with pleasure. That's beautiful. Oh, Dr. Bruning, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have you on the show as a guest. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it too. I, it was really a pleasure talking to you. Fabulous. Oh, good. If, um, if anybody wants to find you, are you on Instagram? Are you on Facebook? Um, where should they go? My website is the best because I have everything there. So Inner Mammal Institute, innermammalinstitute.org. Okay. And I have videos. I have all social media and I have blogs and podcasts and all my books. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put that information, your website in the show notes. So if you're looking for that, you can go there. To everyone listening, please tell your friends, rate us five stars and leave a positive review. Don't forget to email me a screenshot of that positive review so I can add your name to our monthly drawing to win a free session with me. If you'd like to book an angel medium reading now, you can do so on my website, www.jancis.com. That's www.jancis.com. Friends, if you'd like to connect with me, I'll be over on Instagram and Facebook today. You can find me on both of those sites when you search at Angel Podcast. That's at Angel Podcast. And don't forget to follow me for daily angel messages over there. Friends, one more angel message. As you go about your week this week, I want you to remember that your angels, your guides, your loved ones on the other side are always there helping you, looking out for you, bringing new wonderful things into your life. So as you go about your week, I want you to remember this and I want you to remember to open up your heart. I want you to see the new opportunities, the new friends, the new dreams, the new connections that your spirit team is trying to bring into your life right now. Whatever you need, talk to them, ask them, communicate with them, because the more you ask for their help, the more they can do for you. Thank you so much for listening, sending you peace, bliss, and many, many blessings, my friends.